0: Thank you for listening to the Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: I no longer believe in any other revolution, said Richard Wagner. Save that which begins with the burning down of Paris, a comment that speaks volumes about the outsized role that the French capital has played in the imaginings, not just of the French themselves, but of the entire world. And um, today's episode is the first episode of The Rest of History that we're devoting to the history of an entire city. Uh, and Dominic sambrook with me. Um, it's got to be Paris, hasn't it, really? I suppose so.
0: I think Paris has played this emblematic role, hasn't it, in the world's imagination for the best part of, well, certainly 500 years, maybe a thousand years. Um, I actually don't like Paris at all, Tom. Um,
1: as our Twitter followers will know. Yes, I've- they do. Because, because, um, every week, obviously when we do an episode, we ask for questions. Yeah. So mine, very Francophile. That doesn't tracing me We will that be tracing the glories, beauties, wonders and terrors That have marked 2,000 years of the City of Light That was me Yeah Have you got mine there as well? The City of Light? Or the most overrated city on earth A wash in dog excrement Where you often see people urinating in the streets I had the worst bout of food poisoning of my life in Paris Incidentally <laughs> You did my voice perfectly <laughs> You do my voice perfectly, <laughs> John Bull Speaks
0: had, fa- had scallops on Valentine's Day with my wife, and we both got hideously ill. And that, to me, that was like the nail in the coffin of the City of Light. I haven't been back,
1: actually. Never been back. That's what comes of going abroad, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, people used to terrible. take tins of bay beans, didn't they? A used... terrible warning. <laughs> yes. Thank, thank goodness, then. Thank goodness. that, As well as the John Bull of Chipping Norton, <laughs> we have our first French guest, Agnès Poirier. Um well-known journalist, well-known commentator who who is um, familiar to both French and, and to British um, listeners, but also has written two fantastic books on the history of Paris, Left Bank, Art Passion and the Rebirth of Paris, 1940 to 1950. And that's a really fabulous book because that 1940 to 1950, you get the Second World War and then you get the recovery from the Second World War. And that's yeah. a kind of unusual way of doing it. Um, and then Agnes, Notre dame, the soul of France, which obviously you wrote in the aftermath of um the terrible fire that swept the great cathedral, and you begin the book very movingly with a, an account of, of you know you you watched the fire you you live right next to the the cathedral itself and that was something the the thought that Notre Dame might be lost was something that um people in Paris people in France obviously found incredibly upsetting, but also people around the world and I wonder why did. Why do you think it had the impact that it did, the thought that Notre Dame might be lost?
2: Well, I mean, yeah, we have to go back on that night, 15th of April 2019, and I happened to be in Paris. Um, strangely, I was preparing um, to comment on an address that President Macron was going uh, to do after the unrest of the yellow vest, the gilets jaunes. And um, it was beautiful, beautiful day. And when in Paris I... Lucky to live right opposite on the left bank, with a wonderful view on the south um, rose window. And uh, seven p.m., I see this huge uh, smoke, yellow uh, smoke and cloud um, uh, through the kitchen window, and so I rush uh, down on the quay on the river bank because it could only come from what is opposite, that is to say Notre Dame, and that was the beginning of of uh, a very dramatic evening. And it's it's very strange, because if you're uh, that there were two things happening at the same time, you're a French person or a Parisian, and you feel this ontological, um, uh, you know, shock, and you're profoundly upset, but you don't exactly know why. Of course, it's a gem of Gothic architecture. Uh, She's been with us in Notre Dame for more than 850 years, achievement of humankind, Um, but it went much further than that. And and that's why actually I wanted to write the book. I wanted to understand my own feelings. And second shock is to see that the whole world is watching with us those images and feel the same thing. And because I have got to comment, that's my daily job. To you know, everything. Every time there's something happening in France or in Paris, I, I get calls from all over the world, and I need to find words immediately to to explain what's going on. And I had people in tears uh, in uh, in TV studios and and radio studios in Sydney, in Singapore, in Beijing, uh, name it, all over the world. And some of them presenters. Um, a TV presenter in tears saying, and yes, I've never been to France, but I know Notre Dame, I'm in tears, explain why I felt like this. And so suddenly there was, I hadn't set foot in the cathedral in 15 years. I'm not a practicing Catholic, I'm not religious. So the religious dimension, um, you know, couldn't tell the whole story. And so we're really at the heart, if you like, of your podcast uh, in the, you know why Paris? Of course, Paris had to be the first uh, podcast you would dedicate to a city because this is uh, the epitome of uh, the city, and I think it's been going on for a thousand years.
0: And what do you think it means then, if you can boil it down? I mean, that's a, obviously we're meant to be doing that in an hour, but if you can boil it down in <laughs> sort of three lines or so, what is it that Paris represents? Do you think
2: it depends? Um, you know um, if we we're starting in the 12th century for instance we could um especially uh, if we're talking about Notre Dame but, but we could also be slightly more modern or or co- contemporary in the sense that i think for for people today um they get their idea of paris because paris is as much an idea than a yeah. reality yeah you but know.
1: but you, know, you you know what's interesting though you talk about the medieval and the modern but even in antiquity so there's a comment by julian the apostate who was the nephew of um of constantine the great and he says um of paris so he talks he calls it lutetia which is the roman name and he calls it my beloved lutetia so even in the roman period there was clearly something about it that um that that that, that gave it this kind of sense and i Perhaps I don't know what it is. Perhaps it's just the, the positioning of it on the same, Perhaps it's just kind of the the, the drama of its positioning. I, I, well, I don't lots of know. cities
0: on rivers. I mean,
1: there yes. must be
0: something more than that. I mean Yeah,
1: I, 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 clearly, I mean, it it's it's an important Roman city. Um its name Paris comes from the, the local tribe, the Parisi. Um it survives the fall of Rome. Kings in Paris, the so Frankish kings, are building amphitheatres as late as the 6th century. It's kind of amazing. So in a sense, there's a kind of degree of continuity much greater than you get, say, in the history of London, where there really is a kind of meltdown. Um, and then it emerges again as the main city of, the, of what becomes the French royal family. So that's really the key, isn't it, Agnes, that it's, it's, it's a royal city from the beginning.
2: Yes, it is. And actually, it's interesting when I say it's the the idea, it's as much an idea than a reality in the 12th century. Look at cities all around uh, Europe. Um, You know, London has 40,000 inhabitants, actually, the most populous cities are found in the Flanders and in northern Italy. Um, Venice and and Milan have 200,000 inhabitants, which is enormous. But Paris, has almost 300,000 inhabitants. And whereas cities usually perform one role, for instance, you know, Ghent, uh, for instance, is a commercial city, um, or Venice is a commercial city and Bologna is a university city. Well, Paris is uh, performs all the roles. It's a university uh, city, it's a royal city, it's the bishops uh, city. Um, it's also the merchant city. And um, that time, when actually Notre Dame, it's not a surprise, was uh, built, you know, between, let's say, 1150 and, and the end of the uh, uh, the 14th century, uh, the, the end of the 13th century, sorry. Uh, uh, Paris has, you know, will live through 150 years of continuous growth imagine that it's never happened since it's a dream you know because we're talking about intellectual expansion artistic um uh, economic it's huge economic boom uh, and here you are you know this this gem of a gothic uh, masterpiece uh, springing from the very heart the ile de la cité and at the time we're talking about 10 10,000 inhabitants just there today there are only what not even 900. Um, And it's the bustle of a city, it's, it's, you know, the life, uh, uh, the rich live next to the poor and destitute and, and the narrow lanes. I mean, when I had to research that medieval Ile de la Cité, it was extraordinary because it's this you know, if if I was a, a chemist, I, was, I would talk about the precipitate of life. You know, it's it's there,
1: and it's coming from all over Europe, isn't it? I mean, that's the other thing that that right from the beginning, Paris is a magnet for people, not just from France, but from 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 across Europe, and they're going to the university. And even in the Middle Ages, Paris is famous for its intellectuals.
2: Well, yes, Dominic's you know pulling what? a face. <laughs> <laughs> that's just my natural resting face.
1: On. <laughs> Maybe it's a knee-jerk
0: thing when I hear the word "intellectuals." <laughs> you reach for your gun, yeah.
2: <laughs> but the students, the students were flocking to the University of Paris, and already, uh, because of, obviously there were students, uh, um, you know, uh, religious students, but already some very independent-minded scholars and teachers um, attracting those uh, uh, you know, young minds of, of Europe um, and uh, setting up new schools and quite dis- dissident schools right on the left bank. And where would the students go and find lodgings? Well, on the left bank. It wasn't called the left bank, obviously, um, but because it was cheaper. And you think, okay, well, Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, you can... Uh, <laughs> You can. I mean, it's it started at that. Begins years. with
1: Abelard, I guess. Who who we did an episode on um, the top on ten eunuchs, eunuchs. Yeah. and uh, Abelard a, a, appeared in that.
0: And Agnes, at what point do you think? So cities often, their, their image is is sort of created um, in competition with other cities. So London, the way we think of London, is it's kind of wrapped up with the way we think of Paris. You know, Paris is romantic and walking along the Seine, and, and London is businesslike and pragmatic and all this sort of stuff. At what point do you think Paris even noticed London or was Paris defining itself against I don't know Rome or 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 places in Flanders or or other Italian cities or whatever?
2: Well, it depends on, you know, what what period we're talking about because obviously um you yeah, know Rome uh, um well, you know, loomed heavily. Uh but also Athens. It's it it's interesting There a uh, I'm just making a you Know uh, um, a huge lip, uh, leap to uh, the Belle Epoque. Uh, but there's um, a, an area of Paris called Pigalle, which I'm, I'm sure you know. Um, and a lot of um, clubs or cafes at the Belle Epoque were called the New Babylon, the New yeah. Athens. Yeah. yeah, um, and um, so London actually, you know, it's a 19th century comparison, I think. This is when. Paris, you know, when all the revo- revolutionaries, uh, the Cobinards, you know, different, the, the exiles, basically, uh, um, um, they would go to Belgium and they would go to, uh, to Brussels wonder, and they would go to London.
1: Also, perhaps the 18th century Voltaire going to London. Um, it's maybe the first time that, that London gets kind of promoted as a, of a, an alternative.
2: And not only London, uh, you know, the, the fashion, what we call the Anglomania, uh, probably yeah. started with Mal- Voltaire, and so we went through bouts and you know fads of of uh, thinking that everything English was fantastic.
1: But but think, I mean, going back to the Middle Ages and thinking the relationship between Paris and London, it, London is absolutely subordinate, and yeah. it's it's the fashions that you get in Paris that determine what people wear in London. And I guess that again, I mean, it's amazing. You get kind of intellectuals, amazing architecture, and you get fashion. Right the way from the from the Middle Ages all the way through, and I guess that's that's the power of of, of Paris as a kind of mythic place, isn't it? That actually <laughs> these these myths are very very old, and they're not even myth. I mean, they they they're kind of bred of circumstance. But that it's 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 amazing that um, Paris has had this kind of outsized role in the imaginings of Europeans right the way from the Middle Ages.
2: And I think we should mention the French Revolution because, you know, for for the people today. You know they are not so much. Um, it's not that they, I mean their their knowledge of, of medieval time is, is not as great as the you know contemporary history and, and we think what are the cliches about Paris? It's May the sixty eight events. It's um, mass protest, student protest with their uh, black polonets. You know uh, it's Derrida, it's Foucault. But before that, really, it's the French Revolution. And um and when I said that Paris was an idea as much as a reality, you know, when your French citizen a Parisian fed on the you know, our motto which is uh liberte égalité, fraternite. I mean you never recover from you know from it. And actually <laughs> yeah. and actually it's you know it's it's um it's almost a malediction as we call it. It's almost uh, a curse really, because um do you know the same, the, the Paris syndrome? um for um, for the Japanese you know they 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 have such an incredible incredible idea um of supreme uh, ideal idealist idea of paris when they they arrive in Paris, obviously they are so disappointed they feel they, they feel sick
1: like Dominique, <laughs> um,
2: like Dominic, <laughs> well, yeah literally exactly. yeah <laughs> and so because you can never reconcile. Uh, the idea and the reality, and I wish uh, that so many people never set foot in Paris, because it's um, uh, the reality doesn't measure up to, to the myth.
1: I, I, I wasn't dis- I I thought it was great. i
0: oh, I'm
2: glad. It, it
1: met every expectation.
0: Um, <laughs> um, when did you when did you go, Tom? When did you first go? How old are you?
1: Um, when did I first go? I must have been about twenty. I think, and I, I just felt incredibly depressed coming back to London, thinking how much more beautiful Paris was. Um, I, I was, yeah, I was really depressed about it. I, I thought Paris was so amazing that I kind of looked at London and thought, oh. And what was it though? Was it the the sort of the boulevard and the nineteenth century? It, I thought it was incredibly physically beautiful. Um, yeah, but it was just the excitement of it. It was, it was this kind of sense of that I was at the. I was at the kind of the beating heart of so much that had had transformed and changed the world um, It was it was kind of in the eighties, and I think London felt a bit shabby in comparison. Well, London was very shabby in the eighties, but but it was the sense that you know I'm I'm walking the streets where all these incredible people walked, and it was you know I have an immense appetite for cliche, and that (laughs) appetite was hugely satisfied. But it was yes, it was the it was the weight of history. I think. Um, I mean, we've got so so on the on the theme of revolution, we've got a question here from Kane Carlyle, and he says wondering why Paris is always linked to revolutionary figures, thinking of figures such as Marx, but what is it? Bakunin. How do you pronounce Bakunin. that? Bakunin. Yeah. So apologies to enthusiasts for revolutionary thinkers there. But also more modern revolutionary figures like Ayatollah Camini. Why do these people always set up shop there, assuming it's not only due to legacy of the French Revolution? Ho Chi Minh was a pastry chef. Could I could I mean just, just before we, we, we go go back to the French Revolutionary period, just to go back a bit, I think because I think one answer to that is that it is actually pre-revolutionary. So um The parent of learning. Who do you think described Paris as the parent of learning? It was Martin Luther, who you wouldn't have down as as a Francophile. And the amazing thing about Paris is that both Ignatius Loyola, the guy who founds the Jesuits, and John Calvin, John Calvin, you know, the great Protestant thinker, both studied at the same school. So the even in the 16th century, although you, you tend to think of Germany as the kind of the womb of, of the Reformation, it's all going on in Paris. And then, of course, you've got the um, you know literal slaughter on the streets with the um, the massacre on Saint Bartholomew's Day. Um, so I think you know, even in the 16th century, you've got this sense of Paris as an absolute cauldron of intellectual, moral. Um, ferment which i guess kind of percolates through and you know paris is the intellectual capital as well as the fashion capital through the 17th through the 18th century which then is why the french revolution comes as such a shock I And mean, it shouldn't really because in a sense it's kind of been brewing
0: but I guess what do, when do you i mean james beamish had a question about uh, paris's golden age do you think the golden age was before the revolution or do you think it's more modern well
2: i think the golden age i mean the- that's what I was describing when you think of the 12th century and the 13th century, really. Um, because we've never seen that expansion for such a long time. Uh, we, yeah. we would dream of living 150 years, you know, of, um, of expansion development in every single disip- discipline. Um, yes, you know, it hasn't been as good ever since. <laughs>
1: Okay. Oh, All right. Very depressing. Well, I, I
2: think that's. I think, <laughs> and, and I'm not even a
1: I, I think that's a great note on which to, to, to end the first half. That <laughs> the whole history of Paris has been a sad decline since the 13th century. Um, but perhaps in the second half, we could look at, I guess, what more traditionally would be seen as the golden age of, of Paris, which I guess would be the kind of the 19th century, um, and, and look at its 19th and 20th century history because there's so much to talk about there. So we will uh, see you back after the break.
3: I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier.
2: And I'm Katie Kaye, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades.
3: Welcome to the Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger.
2: Go on, tell us. Were those donations you made like Obama in 2008 was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example?
3: So, I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007.
0: Bienvenue, mes amis. Uh, we're talking about uh, Paris with the French uh, journalist, writer and historian Agnès Parrier. And we have... So, the, Agnès, the image of Paris to a lot of Anglo-Saxon listeners now is a city that's constantly in revolution, where basically people are always ripping up cobbles and throwing them at the police. Um, first of all, is that justified? And secondly, is that, do you think, is there a sense in which people are just constantly reenacting the French Revolution? And the events of kind of 1789 and 1793, 1794. Again, every generation in Paris feels a kind of obligation almost to chuck stones at the police and sort of, you know, gird up for the guillotine.
2: Well, you nailed it. It's impossible to be French and not to go through that rite of passage. Um, we can't help it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and when you think of um, you know the last two hundred and and you know forty years since the French Revolution. Look at Britain. You know Britain has been perfecting the art of croquet for uh, that amount of time when France was actually going through eleven political changes and regime changes. And I'm talking you know from the Empire to um, uh, to uh, uh, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth Republic. Uh, the Second Empire, the Commune. Um, I would, I would say even Vichy, but Vichy, you know, is not supposedly France, or at least that was the myth.
1: But it's not Paris, is it? And that's the
2: no, exactly. Yeah, precisely. But it's not even France. I mean, you know, it's very convenient. We have a way with history, and in a way, that's how we could reconcile uh, with each other uh, after the war. But uh, we now know. I mean, we owed it, and. Um, um, it was quite recently, actually. It was Jacques Chirac, uh, one of the very few good things he, he did as a president. He uh, acknowledged the fact that uh, Vichy uh, France was also France, um, and uh, yes, yeah, so it's it's turmoil all the time, and and uh, you know we've been talking about the Sixth Republic uh, for the last twenty years now, uh, as if it was going to solve our problems. And so, as you know, we thrive on division. Uh, we are unruly um, uh, to an excess I would say and um, clashing with the police is what you have to do and so there's always a demonstration that you can join <laughs> and I was 14 when in 86 there was um, we didn't understand a thing I was obviously in a, at the lycée and uh um, it was the reform of the university uh, law, and uh, I went marching. And uh, the smell of te- tear gas. Um, actually, a student uh, was uh, killed. So I realized the day after that it was not just
3: a dangerous uh, sport. Uh,
2: uh, uh, yes, this is when I sort of realized that uh, protest, uh, uh, you know, could be dangerous, and it was all very political. But the the thing is, you politics if if you're a Parisian, um Politics in everything you do, and, and from a very early age. I, I can't remember uh, not feeling political, not going on the march uh, with my parents, and, uh, and ever since. I used, as a student in London, I, I would uh, go on the Eurostar to go and march at the weekend in Paris. <laughs> wow, and that's come commitment.
1: Back. <laughs> that is commitment.
0: It's not <laughs> commitment,
2: it's, it's um, existential.
1: Of course it is. Of course, it, you're Parisian. Of course it's existential. Yes,
2: but it's exhausting.
1: Yes. Okay. Well, so so looking at the, the the broad sweep of of French revolutionary history, um, we've 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 done the French Revolution. We we've we've dealt with that already. We've completely <laughs> we sorted that needs, out. It needs never be discussed. Uh, by No, anybody it needs never again. be discussed again. We've we've nailed that. Um, and Napoleon, I think we're going to do at some later point. But could we? Uh, in the in the episode of the French Revolution, I mentioned how my my daughter's favourite film was um Marie Antoinette, um, but they then moved on to another film, which was of course um. Les Miserables. Don't know if you've seen it, but it features um, revolutionary activity. Um, Dominic, have you seen it? I have. Yeah, I have seen it. Okay. So how, so, how, so how accurate is the uh, the portrayal of the revolution in Les Miserables?
0: I, but but the thing about it is it's it's a very minor revolution. It's what in in England would be considered a, a big revolution. But in I think the uprising in Les Miserables is actually not a successful revolution. That's
1: right. It's kind of in the 1820s, sometime, isn't it? Isn't it a sort of a pre
0: 1830 yeah. or pre 1848? I can't remember.
1: Well, I'm just asking because my daughters will be listening to this, so I want them. I want you to give them the answer. <laughs> so it's I'm exactly humiliated. <laughs> okay. Well, th- I'm sure it's incredibly realistic. <laughs> that, that's my answer.
0: And they all um, sing. <laughs> but but it's the part of but but actually, Les Misérables completely and utterly conforms to what Agnes was talking about. This sort yeah, of it does. of the sort of self-conscious. Um, reproduction of the story of the French Revolution, the sort of the
1: waving the flag, the barricades. But can I tell you what it also has, which I, for me is it's a, a crucial Crow. part of my imagining. Yeah, it does have Russell Crowe, a, a great, great songster. But what it also has is them running through sewers. Yes, there's a lot of sewers. St- there's a lot so of sewers. So and sewers, uh, they're a crucial part of of my imagining of Paris and the sense of, you know, master criminals and um, detectives Vidocq, the great, um, the great police chief, who then sets up the first detective agency. So that's also a part of it, Um, and I guess that that kind of blurs with the sense that in that in Paris, you're never entirely sure who's, you know, will will the criminal turn out to be the police chief or vice versa, and likewise, you know, will the emperor turn out to be the refugee? Um, Will the there's the constant possibility that everything will be turned on its head. And would you agree that that's kind of part of the drama and the the fascination of of Parisian history? But perhaps also it gives you your existentialist headache.
2: Yes, I I would agree. Um, But you know what, just to go back one second on what we were saying, um, the thing with the French Revolution, it gave us the idea, and not only the idea because it proved us uh, right uh, throughout, that... The power lays with the people, not with the elected uh representatives or the government, which is kind of strange and it's completely un-British in many ways you know when in Britain you have one million people marching uh in the streets it's it's anecdotal you know it's not going to change anything to um to uh, uh, the government's or the prime minister's decision because um in Britain. Uh, The legitimacy of of the power it lays with the parliament was in France with the people. So we know we have this power. We only need to be, um, um, you know, one million. Uh, Usually if we were one million in the streets of Paris, we will overturn the government's um, uh, reform or, or, or plan. Um, so we have this incredible, incredible power in our hands or in, your, in our feet, uh, really. And uh, to go back on, on the sort of underground powers, you know, the catacombs and the, the sewers, it's interesting because the, uh, uh, during in, in 1944, you know, the resistance were operating from the catacombs. Um, so you had the Germans... <laughs> uh oh, you know tanks, and just uh, a few meters below uh, the tanks you you had the uh, gaulles men and and the communists uh in their early twenties uh, fomenting the insurrection um and um and of course the police you know we have such a different that you know the police doesn't have a very good image in france uh because they can turn villain villain you know very very quickly and it's not a coincidence that napoleon created uh, the most efficient uh, police in europe at the time there's a fantastic um uh, portrait um, of fouché um who was the, the, the you know police head handshow uh, of of napoleon by uh, Stephen Schweig. it's the most remarkable uh, book um about a in a way the, the first French policeman so yes there's always something murky um in in Paris and but very very attractive too
0: but the thing about protest um raises the issue that's always hung over sort of modern Parisian history which is Paris versus France so to a lot of people outside France people who know nothing of French history Paris kind of is France but obviously, within the story of France, there's always been. I mean, we talked in our French Revolution podcast about the Vendée and about the, you know, the 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 hideous kind of bloodletting in the French Revolution. And obviously, a big part of Paris's history was the Commune in what is 1870-71. They've lost the war against Prussia. They set up this sort of left wing regime, and then the rest of France turns on them. And is it Adolphe Thiers who who sends in the army and crushes them? Um, and it's this sense of Paris sort of. Paris is something apart from France. Um, do you think Paris? It's a, it's a, it's a stupid question, really. But in some ways, is Paris France or is it something different?
2: Well, if you're a Jacobine, um, Paris is France, obviously. Um, and I remember very arrogant. Uh, you know, I was very arrogant um, as a young French woman in in uh, in Britain in the when I arrived as a student in the late nineties, and people. Were, British friends would say, oh, where do you come from? And I say, Paris, where else? Um, <laughs> and um, That's exactly
0: how I'd expect a, a <laughs> French uh, student to talk.
2: <laughs> and because, you know, it's such a centralised, the French Revolution um, made France and, uh, in a way, Paris, uh, what it is, so centralised um, because it was bits and pieces. And that was the only way that we could... Um, make one uh, people, and, and the same happened to the to the language. You know, today the idea that um, uh, that we could uh, let Breton or, or, or Corsican be a, a language taught in French school is sort of a, um, a very very shocking to Jacobine ears, if you like, um, because. It goes against the idea of France as, um, you know, one people, one nation. And if you look at Europe, it's actually the most centralised. The, the, you know, the concept of nation really is very much alive in France. Um, and um, and so, to answer your question, yes, Paris is France in many ways. Uh, even though La Commune is really the failure. Of Paris, because Paris wanted to sh- lead the way and show the way as... as uh, Didn't they off. zoo animals? Oh, yes. My great-great-aunt um, ate rats during the commune.
1: But not, uh, not a tiger? Or... No.
2: She she only mentioned <laughs> rats. I was very small, but I remember the, that detail.
0: Goodness, that's a link with history. But, I mean, so, that's an incredibly bloody episode, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, that must have left a really deep scar but, on Paris's... I mean, basically, the rest of France turns on it and lots of people are killed.
2: and like Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: But, I mean, that must have been... Do you, do you think that you can draw a line from that to kind of Vichy and all that sort of stuff?
2: Well, it's very strange because when you're, you know, in France, and I was a left-wing, a left-wing student, we were given that myth of La Commune being that fantastic episode of French history and when 15 years later, I, I plunged into the, the history of black community. It's just a massive failure on every account. And the division of the Republicans, therefore, of the left wing of the time, um, was uh, abysmal um and uh, when actually for instance the second republic 1848 to 1950 uh, to to 1852 it only lasted for four years but we're still um enjoying uh, many of the social reforms that were um uh, passed at the time uh before napoleon the uh made a coup and and, and became the uh, uh first the president and then the uh um the emperor um but la commune is such a myth that needs to be debunked at least in france because I'm, I'm sure uh you know all about it but for for us especially um anyone on the left in france they they still think naively that la commune was that perfection in history
1: um you mentioned napoleon the Third, and i think i remember i think it, it may have been in notre dame that you say of napoleon the Third that, that actually he preferred london to uh to Paris and he spent much of his life in London. And yet he had as much influence as as any ruler of, of Paris has had on the face of the city. And of course, that there is one key figure in that history. And we've got a question from Thoughtfully Catholic who asks, was it a happy coincidence for the regime that Baron Hausmann's reconstruction of Paris made it both easier to move troops and more difficult to construct barricades? So that's what, what's often said about Hausmann's reforms, that that's the aim. But just more broadly, to what extent do you think um, Haussmann is personally responsible for the image and the look of Paris to this day? Is, is he as significant a figure as the myth has him?
2: I think he is, yes, because of the amount of uh, um, recreation of Paris, or, or some would say completely destroyed and disfigured and uh, destructed Paris. But um, Yes, yeah, so the Ile de Cité, which you,
1: yeah. which you mentioned as being full of people, and basically, he's the guy who who clears it, doesn't he?
2: Completely. I mean, basically, he's um, the man chosen. He was the pre- prefect of Bordeaux and uh, Napoleon III, who didn't like Paris so much. And that's why he could decide on such radical redesign of the French capital. Otherwise, he would have never dared doing what he did. And he chose um, Hausmann for his... Efficiency. Um, he was a uh, workaholic. He would uh, come to his office at six a.m. Um, and he was very talented uh, as well. And the thing is, he still carries this um, sick, sick body that needed a, a surgeon. And he told Houseman look, I want Paris to breathe. I mean, we're, we're also talking, I mean, it did great things in terms of in terms of hygiene because um, Paris was this place with cholera, for instance, in 1832, 20,000 uh, Parisians died of cholera. Um, you had pockets of, I mean, it was so insalubrious. Um, and um, the Ile de la Cité even itself, although it was a gem of medieval lanes and, and, and the... You, you, it hadn't so much changed since the middle ages but it was also um, a haven of, of uh, pro, you know prostitution and criminality and um, um, and, and disease so Hausmann just cut like a surgeon and and made those Big, you know, arteries where people, Parisians were very happy. They had this huge boulevards. Uh, they had this beautiful urban uh, design, um, which we still have uh, somehow, uh, I mean, in some parts of, of, of Paris. And he gave it the look uh, that we so cherish uh, today. So, you know, every Parisian is in two minds about Hausmann. Uh, because so much was lost, so many hôtels particuliers, so you know gems on the Boulevard Saint Germain on both sides of the river, really. But on the other hand, he also gave the all these boulevards with this uniform, uh, uniform-looking um, uh, buildings, uh, all the same with their maids' rooms uh, on the sixth and seventh floor. This sort of bourgeois, but also you know that there the was gas and electricity and water, uh and the sewers too. I mean they, it had started really sewer. But yeah. you Tom know, each the time there was a head of state visiting Paris, they wanted to have that visit of sewers, uh, because it was such, you know, state of arts uh sewers. So You know, he was a great guy, and he destroyed a lot of Paris.
1: So, do you think? I mean, basically, that is then what sets the stage for what I guess most people outside France would think of as Paris's golden age, which is the Belle Époque, and when when, you know the the era where Paris is the center of the world. You've got Proust and Picasso and and
0: Toulouse-Lautrec. I was going to ask a question, which um, well, thoughtfully Catholic has asked another question, which I think is a really good question because this is the Paris of Émile Zola. And it's also it's the it's the Paris of the kind of classic nineteenth century late nineteenth century French novels. I mean, I loved when I was a student. I had this mad idea of reading all Zola's Rougon Macquart sequence and completely and utterly failed. But um, you know that portrait of Paris there is kind of late nineteenth century Paris, and that's the one that is enshrined, I think, in the world's imagination. And do you, do you... I think it's a bit later. I think it's I think it's the kind of the the the, the Paris of
1: of Proust and.
0: No, I Picasso don't know that Paris. And- I, I despise that Paris. Talk. I'm all about the. I'm all about the late 19th century Paris. I'm the Paris of La and all these sort of. It's a
1: massive Zola Proust punch up. It is. Zola That's- would
0: win that punch. I mean, Zola. God, I might yeah, have of course. Mad I, I mean, Proust would just retire to his
1: room and he would. But they would. I mean, the noise. Would. Um.
0: But also the Dreyfus case. The Dreyfus case. I mean, Paris is a sort city of convulsed by that, isn't it? And yes.
2: Oh, it was. You know, the the way I describe Brexit i say it is the dreyfus affair of britain in the sense that every single family is divided on the subject and and sometimes you know generations don't talk to each other um and um of course it's different but not in the way it has um you know set people against each other i think and and uh, um yes the dreyfus affair um is a defining moment of modern France.
0: So the Dreyfus affair is when this Jewish officer is accused, falsely accused of espionage. He's sent off his knee to Devil's Island. And it's clearly that he's it's a, he's been framed There's anti-Semitism. Uh, he's been supposedly passing secrets to the Germans. And then it turns into this colossal scandal because they cover it up, don't they? And in a way, can you not sort of trace that all the way? And Zola sends
1: in Jacques. Yeah, Jacques. And, exactly. then, and, and then, gets in such trouble that he, he has to go into exile in Upper Norwood. <laughs> Fate worse than death. And objects to the quality of the pastry in Upper Norwood, which I don't think is very grateful. <laughs> is that really true? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, pastry,
0: I, I mentioned my fact about Ho Chi Minh training under, supposedly training under Lescoffier as a pastry
1: chef. So pastry is obviously... Yeah, he, well, he went to Upper French Norwood history. and he complained they overboiled the fish and the pastry was inedible.
2: We had food poisoning, you see.
1: Don't think she has much <laughs> gratitude, really, for the hospitality of Upper Norwood. Um, <laughs> but then I guess we're into
0: the World Wars, aren't we? Um, when Paris is a city, I mean, so in World War One, the Germans kind of almost get there, but they're stopped on the Marne by the taxi drivers of Paris, who kind of, you know, all set off and carried the soldiers to the front. And then, of course, Paris almost falls in the First World War. And then it does fall in the Second World War, but obviously that everyone's seen those pictures of a the the, the Germans sort of they're on horseback, aren't they? They're riding down the Champs Elysees, and there's also the famous images of of people sobbing in the streets and the sense in which France, Paris, which is this sort of sacred centre of France, has fallen actually, you know, in the most humiliating way
1: to the well, foreign a invader. sense in which I mean- that's what Casablanca is about? The whole well, but- of Casablanca, in a sense, is a kind of a lament a lament for for the occupation of paris
2: it's interesting because in a way the fall of paris really defined again no other city was was more powerful and the fall of paris represented yeah. the fall of western civilization
0: nobody talks about the fall of brussels do they i mean well the belgians do <laughs> but i mean quite. nobody else does
2: and uh, but also likewise the liberation of paris yeah was and that's
1: where notre dame comes in again
2: Yes, that was this moment of pure elation, not, not only for Paris, but for the whole world. This is, in a way, you know, there's, I mean, it's, there are wonderful moments because Paris was not going to be liberated by uh, the Allies because, you know, as I know, I mean, it was not a strategy, strategic... Um, is it Leclerc?
3: Uh, Le, Leclerc, makes the dash. yes.
2: So basically, at some point, you know, uh, in Normandy, um, as the invasion, or as we call it in France, you know, and the debarquement is happening. The American um, troops are not going to go via Paris because it's not strategic. You know, they have to uh, make their way as fast as possible um, towards the east. And de Gaulle says, look, uh, guys, we need, we need to liberate Paris. Um, and so he's, he has this very heated conversation with Osano. Uh, and of course, the free French are under command of the Americans. I mean, they can't go, otherwise they will face, um, you know, martial court. But uh, because it's so important, um, Leclerc, uh, who is under the, the, the command of General de Gaulle, sends a vanguard, and he is, is, is faces, um, uh, really, I mean, it could have been a trial and, and uh, being in marshal court, but he sends a vanguard. And at the same time, the resistance in Paris um, have launched their own insurrection. And there's, there, there are some very dangerous moments when the, the Parisians don't have anything to eat. Um, they obviously, I mean, the resistance can do what they can, but... You but know,
1: also, I, I mean, adding to the jeopardy is the fact that Hitler has ordered the governor of Paris to basically yeah. blow it up. Von I mean, it's, it's it's he the has most, instructions to destroy the city rather than abandon it. It's it? the most dramatic, hair-raising narrative. <laughs> and, and then it has this kind of wonderful climax where the, the governor doesn't blow up Paris. The Allies join with the Free French in capturing it. Hemingway gets drunk and General de Gaulle walks into Notre Dame. <laughs> and there is no one better to tell us the story of what then happens than you. <laughs> go on. So give us a, Hem- a, a patriotic French thrill. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, But Hemingway, you know, go, before he gets drunk at the Ritz, you know what he does. He goes to uh, Shakespeare and Company uh, to say hello to uh, the wonderful ladies there. And he also calls on his friend Pablo Picasso. But Pablo is not there. And but the concierge of Picasso says, do you want to leave a note? So he goes back to his Jeep and he takes, uh, you know, hand grenades and he leaves a, a a few hand grenades with a note to Picasso. And then he goes to the Ritz. Okay, now fast forward 26th of August 1944. Um, General de Gaulle has arrived. Um, there are still German snipers in in the streets of Paris. I mean, it's still quite a dangerous place, but obviously uh, the uh, Leclerc, the Fra- the Free French and... Uh, the Americans have, you know, have moved in. Um, and so that's how the whole uh, day is, is, has been conceived. Um, and the radio tells, the French radio tells Parisians and the French that De Gaulle is going to walk down the Champs-Élysées. So two million people in the streets of Paris to uh, acclaim that man they've never seen, really. Um, they might have seen a picture, and might have listened to him on, on the BBC, but they've never met him. So he goes down the Champs Élysées at the Place de la Concorde. There are far too many people, so he has to hop on a car that will that drives him through Rue de Rivoli, passes the Louvre. Um, he goes to Hotel de Ville where he inspects the troops and uh, the Communist resistance and uh, the Free French all together, and Washington and London. And all the film operators are there, and you know Washington and London are looking very keenly to see whether de Gaulle is really the man, because they don't know yet. Uh, and whether he can tame all those unruly communist resistance, this is really what they are afraid of, especially Washington. And de Gaulle being de Gaulle and being a, uh, a French man, um, he says, I need to end with a, a mass, a tedium at Notre Dame. Um, so he walks from the Hôtel de Ville um, in the sea of, of people, um, and he just passes the porch, the entrance of Notre Dame, when um, snipers within the cathedral start shooting. And imagine, there are about 10,000 people who have been waiting for de Gaulle to enter. Uh, they've been sitting on the pews everywhere, uh, waiting for their great liberator, um, and so how breaks loose and we have this audio document that I really urge people to to listen to. You can; it's it's uh, um, it's accessible online. There's this young guy; he's 27. His name is Raymond Marcillac. It's his first live reportage for French radio. He's lying on his belly with all his equipment on the upper gallery, and we listen to all this. And he's is so you, we hear so much fire. And, and the bullets are uh, ricketing on the on the pillars and you know such a bruhaha and uh, so he he describes the scene um saying that people are just crouching and and hiding behind behind pillars and under the pews and de Gaulle is just walking tall um at a slow pace Bullets are just whizzing <laughs> and he goes up the altar. Um, and it's it's very funny because De Gaulle talks about this moment obviously in his memoirs, and he says, "Well, um, I had to be very calm so that people, you know, don't panic because the last thing we needed was a panic of ten thousand <coughs> people in that gothic cathedral." And he keeps it to twelve minutes basically because, you know, there are a lot of people being injured outside uh, on the square. A twelve minute outside. mass. Yes, that's rather well, Ted, a- isn't it? no it was a it was a magnificent and you can hear it in that audio reportage it's magnificent and um, and so he he stands up and he walks slowly and um um it's quite extraordinary because he could have been uh, sh- shot there it was an assassination attempt um and the it um, just has a word with leclerc and says you know clean clean up the the place for me please uh, but to this day we don't know who the, those snipers were whether they were um german collaborator or perhaps communist because the communist really didn't um didn't want really uh, de gaulle uh, as uh, the french leader uh, the french the french uh, new leader um but uh, luckily uh, de gaulle um, Managed to tame the communists,
0: and then after the war, do you think that was France? Uh, France's Paris's? Do you think that was Paris's last kind of golden age, the age of the left bank and existentialists, going up to I don't know, 1968, and that was the kind of Paris's last moment in the sun, as it were, internationally.
2: Oh yes, I think so. Um, well, first of all, because everybody still at the time could read French or understand yeah. French. Uh, so it means that they didn't need to be read in translation, uh, or they were translated. Whereas today, you got um, you do, you don't understand French intellectuals when they uh, when they speak, and you don't read them because they don't they are not translated. Um, but so... having said, that, I mean, having said that, I, I'm not sure
1: that's true because I think that the influence of of um, Paris intellectuals it, it remains incredibly strong. I mean, certainly in America. Foucault. But Not as strong as it was in the fifties, though. I think. Camus I think more Sartre. so. I think. I think the influence of Foucault and Derrida is but that's only in
0: universities, though, Tom. Yeah, I only mean, in universities.
1: Ordinary... But we've discussed culture wars, and we've seen, you know, this reverberates outwards. And but you can is... buy posters. You can buy posters of Albert Camus. You, no one can buy. You can't buy a poster of because he's Jack he's, Derrida. He's, he's safe and dead. Uh, <laughs> whereas, whereas Foucault and and Derrida. I mean, essentially, it's their influence on America that people in Paris are now complaining about. You're right. You know, that's the, the, the paradox of it.
2: And, and we would say today that um, it's because the, um, all those American students didn't understand a thing, the Derrida <laughs> yeah. and Foucault, because, I mean, because deconstruction doesn't mean demolition and doesn't mean consolation. And um, so something was lost in translation here. But yes, we're suffering today of the terrible um, misinterpretation of, of the French thinkers by American students. But I think that's another podcast.
3: <laughs> Le
1: blowback. <laughs> 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 well, I think on that note, Agnes, I can't thank you enough. That, a stop tour through the history of, um, of the great city. Um, thank you so much. Um, we never cleared up the urinating
0: in the streets, though, Tom. I think that's another podcast, isn't it? Yeah, right. We should. Yeah. Merci.
2: Merci beaucoup.
0: Pas du tout. Merci. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next time.
1: Thanks for listening to The Rest Is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at Rest Is History Pod. Dot com. That's restishistorypod.com